Well, you have your Bibles open to the book of Philippians, chapter number 2. So in both cases, see Mark and Yvonne, right? Everybody got that? Just nod and act like you got it if you didn't. So if you didn't get it, see Mark and Yvonne. Philippians 2, I want to begin reading in verse number uh, 5 for us this morning. Read down to verse number 11. The Bible says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture given to us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word, even as I was thinking of the times we've prayed already this morning, preparing to come up here. I'm so thankful that we can come to you through Christ, that great privilege. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. One Christian writer from the Reformation has simplified the Christian life um, this way, namely that God has done two things for us. One, he's given us a desire for righteousness, which we naturally did not possess. And two, he has given us a model so we do not get lost along the way. It is this second part, which you may agree with him or not, you're fine to disagree with him, but it is this second part of modeling that seems to be in Paul's mind here in Philippians chapter 2. And I know that as we speak about Christ being a model for us, some of us may be overwhelmed at that thought because uh, we, we have come to know him and to appreciate him and to, to dwell on the reality that Christ is our justification, as the Bible says. He is our righteousness. We stand righteous before God in Christ and only through Christ. The Bible says that Christ is our wisdom our joy, our high priest, our prophet, and you could go on. The list could be infinite who he is to us. But he is also set as our pattern. In him, not only do we find salvation in our standing before God, but we find how we ought ourselves to walk the Christian life and live out this Christian life. As I said, we might look at the impossibility of that, Christ being our Pattern is kind of like your children wearing your shoes outside. Uh, that Mary told me the other day, John went outside and he was wearing my shoes. And you can imagine the sight. Of course, he's got big feet, so it won't be too impossible to feel those one day. But nevertheless, it seems that way when we talk about Christ as our pattern. We're wearing our father's shoes or some clothes that don't fit us. And nevertheless, he has set and blazed the trail for us and shown us not only enabling us to have fellowship with the Father, but showing us how to live that out in everyday life. We'll look at that more next week as we consider working out our own salvation. 
Well, here he is calling for and has been calling for the church to be humble. We look back in chapter number two in the beginning of this. In verse number three, he tells us not to be selfish or have selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It is in this sense that he brings us to the to the greatest picture, the greatest illustration that we can consider when we think about the subject of humility. It is very natural for Paul to point us to Christ because he has already done that through Philippians. You can turn back with me to chapter number 1 and we'll just look at a, a few of these as we have seen Paul continually presenting Christ to us. Verse number 2, he reminds us that Christ is the source, or verse number One and two, he reminds us that Christ is the source of our grace and peace. You see that grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in verse number six, says Christ will finish the work that he started in you. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse number 11, he tells us, uh, and he speaks of Christ where our righteousness and fruitfulness comes. Fulfilled with the fruit of righteousness that comes were through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Verse number 20, it is Christ who Paul seeks to honor with his life or by his death. In verse 21, he sums up his whole life again with the reality, the person of Christ. Christ is his life and his gain. And those famous words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 29 of chapter number 1, he tells us that it is Christ which we have been granted to believe in, and it is also Christ which we have been granted to suffer for his sake. So naturally, when we come to the subject of glory, or of humiliation and glory, he, he sets in front of us Jesus Christ. There's no other greater example that we can see. Now, verses 5 through verse 11 sets, uh, as some people suggest to us, and they argue back and forth, as a, an early church hymn, or maybe a poem, or, or a confessional creed. Something that the early church had already formulated and, and had taught among one another. And again, it may show us a brief look and perception at how the early church worshipped Jesus. Whether or not Paul wrote it or was repeating a creed that was already made does not matter in one sense. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit through inspiration here pinned down in this letter, this great confession of who Jesus is. And secondly, we see in this section, just in, in by way of introduction, we see in this section so much theology that, that you just kind of want to dwell on every little bit of it. His exaltation, his humiliation, what does it mean being in the form of? What does it mean that he emptied himself? And what does it mean that, that he became a servant? Why is that significant? And you see so many things in there that inform us and challenge us and bring about questions in our minds. At times can lead us aside and, uh, and you know, kind of sidetrack from what Paul is doing here. If you want to keep the section within its context, it is best to see it under verse number 5. And that is, here is a pattern for you. Paul is telling us in verse number 5, 
as I've already said to you, not to live in selfish ambition and conceit, be humble and count others more important. He says in verse number 5, now this is how you're to think. This is how I want you to treat one another. This is how I want you to live your life. I want you to think like Christ thought. That's what he's saying here in verse number 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I think the NIV is particularly helpful in this passage of Scripture, the whole section, probably a little more helpful than the ESV. The NIV says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Or some of you remember the old King James Version Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like Christ thought. Think like Christ thought. Study his humiliation. Study the motivation. Study the outer workings of who he was and what he came to do and and who he is now. And and let your mind be wrapped up in what motivated him, what what pulled him, what was his, his desire, his thoughts, and all those things that is revealed to us, not just here, but throughout the word of God. It just reminds us of two things, I think, that is important. One is doctrine and theology is very practical. One of the greatest expositions of Jesus Christ, and it's given to us to motivate us to think about the needs of others. Say, we're just not filling our heads with endless and useless information and intricate details that is never meant to impact our lives. Who Jesus is and what he has done, the gospel and its impact and, and its example, all of it is meant to fuel and feed the way we interact with one another. It is meant to impact us. Not just meant to, get, to be smarter in, in some ways as we live in a world that is so easy to have information at the tip of your fingers. But it's meant to transform our lives and impact the way we view one another. Theology and doctrine, those things are extremely practical secondly i think we see on the outset of this that we have the mind of christ because you have the spirit of god indwelling you if you're born again the spirit of god lives in you and you have right in front of you god's word god's word given to us what he has done for us what he has said to us Now with that, let's begin looking at this passage together, beginning in verse number 6. I want to first notice the humility of Christ seen in verses 6 through 8, and then the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. But first, I want us to understand his status, the status of Jesus. Notice he's speaking of Christ back in verse number 5, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul was speaking in the form language. He's not saying that he was an empty shell or kind of like God. He's speaking of form here. It's an awkward word. People struggle with how to interpret it. It's a word which means the very, the very, the very substance, the very, essence, the very characteristics of the thing that he's in the form of, he possessed. So to say it another way, he is saying that Jesus Christ was divine. He was the second person of the Trinity. He possessed the essence of deity. He was not a small God. He wasn't like the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other people that claim that he is a very exalted created being. Here he's saying the preexistent state of Jesus Christ that walked the earth was the very Son of God, was God eternal. Other passages 
teaches this very thing, being in the very nature of God. John 1, the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Well, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. John 14.9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. He was equal with the Father. Before the world began, before any, any atom or any matter or any existence of light ever was created by the mouth and through the power of God, Christ, the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, possessed all deity and the essence of God, all the godness that makes God God. He was God. That's what he's saying here. That his status, his situation before his humiliation was that of every divine right and privilege and honor and glory was due him. And we think about the idea and nature of God and the subject of God and you have to admit it is one of the most fascinating and mind-blowing things that you can think on. Who is God? And you comb through the Word of God, and many of you have read through the Word of God over and over again, still find yourself surprised at the bigness and the reality of who God is as He's expressed Himself and explained Himself to us. In fact, the, the, the very eternality of God brings us to the precipice of, of just stopping because we can't comprehend what it means to be before stuff. We, we don't know what it means to be before molecules and atoms and substance and gases and, and, and all the things that, that go into creation. We just don't understand that because we're created beings. We all understand everything has to be made, but here God is that one unmade thing, the necessary being in all of, all of existence. He's saying to us that this what we come to understand through the Gospels and the, and the Epistles, this Son of God, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth was eternal. He was gone. And what wisdom we have collected and we teach in our world today. I mean, I've got books and books and books on my shelf. I wish I knew what half of them were saying. And that's just the ones I've read, and the other half I haven't read. I, I just kind of give up on that. And yet all of that pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the, of the second person of the Trinity, who made all of this, spoke it into existence, and it works as it works. We teach and we study, even in our greatest academic circles with crayons, compared to the infinite knowledge and vast wisdom of God. What power we have seen and we've created the atomic bomb and nuclear weapons and nuclear power plants and all the other things that we've created. And yet here, God speaks things into existence. And all the things that we have made is only barring from the stuff that God has made. What glory he possessed, a glory which man could not look upon and live, 
what worship was due him and was rendered to him continually. Many of you recall in Isaiah 6, as the, the, the angels are crying out, covering their faces, holy, holy, holy. This was Christ's right. This was his honor, his glory, his place in the universe. To be adored and worshipped by his beings or the beings which he has created for that purpose. To be exalted and and. And all of this, we see all of this, which was his, Paul says, was his rightfully. Notice he said, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what he's saying there is is simply that it was, he didn't need to hold on to it, covet after it, or, 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 or keep it guarded for himself was his right. And in fact, our own struggle with, with self-exaltation or selfish ambition and our own struggle with pride and humility, we, we wrestle with those things that oftentimes are not our right. Pleading and demanding things that we think are owed to us, which are not rightfully owed to us. This, he's speaking here, this demonstration of humility and what he's done is, is coming from one who had all right to all joy and all honor and all glory. And that's what makes this so fascinating. Here he's spanning the distance between who he is in his deity, in his godness, and what he has done in taking on the form of a servant in his humiliation. He's saying, let this mind be in you. Now his intent is not for us to get lost at the beginning of this in verse number 6, but, but to see not only, not only his situation, not only his self, who he is, but, but to see his selflessness. Notice at the end of verse number 6, He says, it was not a thing to be grasped. The NIV says something like this, that he did not use it as something, or he did not have it as something to be used for his own advantage. All of his right, all of his glory, all of his honor, he didn't cling to it. Demand to to use it for his own advantage. And if he had done that, there would be no gospel. The plan of humiliation and substitutionary atonement and all the things that follow out of that. If Christ had been greedy in this way, if Christ had been selfish or or been given way to selfish ambition back in verse number 3, then there would be no redemption. There would be no story to tell. He would not leave the splendor of heaven. And yet what you see here is his selflessness. Not in regard for his own self. Not in regard for his own right or his own splendor. But willingly, verse number 7, emptying himself. Willingly laying it aside. It was his showing us his selfless attitude not seeking his own benefit but the benefit of others but notice thirdly not only his selflessness but his servitude and when he says he emptied himself let me just mention what he's not saying here as some have suggested did he did he quit being god how would you answer that he can't quit being who he is 
very essence of being. You're, you are who you are. He cannot stop being God. He didn't lay aside his divineness, his deity, any of his attributes. He didn't, he didn't stop being the second person of the Trinity. He didn't stop being the glorious one, the eternal one. He's not saying that, as some suggest, that when he became human, that he laid aside all of his divinity. But he became nothing. What does he mean by that? Well, the NIV says he become nothing, and, and saying that he took upon himself the, the form of no reputation, the form of a servant. That's what you see in your verse here. In fact, his, his emptying himself, his laying aside his divine right, and uh, as some have suggested this to understand here, is, is really explained for us in verse number 7. By emptying himself, he did this by taking to himself the form of a servant. You ever thought about the incarnation that way? Coming into the world? One is a Jew to a poor family with scandal kind of around the whole thing that, that they weren't even fully married at this time and, and all the things that's going to be said were later on like we know who our dad is. Do you? I mean, that's what they tell him later on, right? To walk this earth in dirt and, and, and in poverty until his disciples are coming to him. We want to be with you. And he's like, I don't even have a home. I mean, the bird's got a nest, but I have nothing. He didn't come here in, in the form of a dictator. He didn't come here in, in the royalty of a king, though he was a king, is a king. He came as a servant. He didn't come to experience the best that the world had to offer and the latest technology, Roman sandals and a, and a chariot, I guess, would have been during his time, whatever that was, but... He didn't come in that fashion. It says as he takes upon himself a human form, that human nature to become human, and, and there's a lot of mystery mixed up in that. I understand that in the incarnation, but, but the greatest mystery is why he came the way he did. Now let's just face it, if we're honest, and, and it's a good place to be honest, right? We're at church. If you were planning this out, you would at least have... A few creaturely comforts planned out for the trip. And yet most of the great human experiences in this life. He didn't partake of. He came for the reason not to be served. He tells his disciples but to serve. Not for the fanfare of the masses to lord over the nations of the world to take the best experiences that humanity had to offer, but he came to serve people, to heal them, to touch leopards, to cast out demons. In one sense, we see this, this, this kind of strange person, Jesus Christ, who speaks with the boldness and authority of God and, and of a great king, and yet possesses the heart of a slave. Isn't that amazing? Because this is the heart of a slave. And I think you see that most clearly, don't you, in the last night when he was betrayed. John 13 gives us the account. You don't need to turn there. You can read it in your own time. And the Bible says, as 
they were there and all the disciples, who knows what they were doing. It's hard to keep up with them. But it says that same night Jesus was betrayed, he took off his outer garment, (laughs) put on a towel, and he began washing the disciples' feet. The very thing that some of them should have been doing to him. Amen? The very thing he should have been demanding. Look, guys, get it together. We're in here. One of you ought to volunteer to wash my feet and the rest of these guys' feet. That's what he should have said, right? And yet, what does he do? He, he sets this principle in front of them. That this is my very purpose for being here. It's to serve you. And Peter's, you know, the way Peter is. And he says, nah, touching my feet. We would have moved on. We've been good. That's one less we got to do. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, if you don't let me serve you, then you have no part with me. Isn't it even interesting that he washed Judas's feet? What does it tell us? Christ was a servant. He came with the heart of a servant. A heart of one to serve and to put others' needs above himself, to care, to give of himself, to sacrifice. Is that your mindset? As we gather together week after week, is that your mindset in this local body of Christ? Mindset of a servant? That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And what kind of mind was it? Well, we know at least in part it was a, it was a selfless mind. It was a, a mind geared towards serving others. Caring, meeting needs, bringing people into your homes, giving, and, and whatever else it may be. And can I say, what a joy it is. And you know that to be true. And I wouldn't call on names just to embarrass anyone. Takes the reward out of it. I'd rather God reward you than me. But what a joy it is to see God's people serve. And display the, the kindness and the love and compassion of Christ. I've seen it here over and over again. And I would just challenge us all that he's telling us. This is, this is a way of life. This is how we're to live. We're to live in a way that is... That is, others-oriented, that we have a mind to serve others. To give of ourselves, not demanding our own right, which is, which is to be served sometimes, but be willing to serve others. I was with a, I would say his name, but you would know him, but I was with a president of a Christian organization nearby, and we were walking, looking at one of the buildings uh, as he was giving us a tour, and I just watched him walk over and pick up a piece of trash, put it in the trash can, walked on in, and just like it was like he, it was his house. And I thought, you know what impressed me with that? He didn't complain about the kids who left the trash. He didn't complain about the people who should have been there to pick it up. Where's all the staff? I mean, we're paying these people. He simply did what was needed to be done, regardless of the fact that he pushed the big broom in the organization. You see, that's a servant's heart. And that's what's modeled for us by Christ. Have the mindset of a servant. He came to serve. Fourthly, he came not only to serve, not only showing us his selflessness, but he came submissively. Notice again, verse number seven. He took upon the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 
and being found in human form. Now, don't let the language confuse you in form and saying, well, he wasn't truly human, as some suggest. He's using that as more of a poetical sense here. Uh, he was human, fully, truly human, truly divine. Again, it's a mystery here. But the very purpose of his incarnation, the very purpose of him coming was to be submissive to the will of the Father. Submissive to the will of the Father. And that is being submissive, being obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He came to do more than casting out demons and healing leopards and raising widows' sons from the dead. He came to meet our greatest need. And that was his submission to the Father, to be obedient to death in our place. You know, we had to understand that Jesus' death was not glorious. It was shameful. It was difficult. Beyond measuring, even saying difficult is an embarrassment of a word to use. So much so where he prays in agony in the garden, if this be possible, let this cup pass me, let it pass. It was a... It was a public spectacle that was to be put on on, on shame before the, the, the whole viewing world at that moment. The cross itself in the, the days of the Roman Empire and during the days of Christ was a shame in itself and not even worthy to be spoken about in, in decent circles. And only fit for those who were not Roman. But it was also facing the wrath of God. And the Bible says he came setting his face as a flint towards Jerusalem to be obedient to the will of the Father. His motivation, the will of the Father. But it isn't just the will of the Father. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't just his submission to the will of the Father, but it is also his, his joy of the benefit of, of others. He died on a cross not for himself but for you. His death wasn't to pay the penalty for his sin, but is to pay the penalty for our sins. It was to model what Paul already said, to count others more significant than yourself, to live in a way to meet and care for the needs of others. And Christ did this in the most pinnacle, the, the grandest way that you could ever understand. And, and there's one sense here we see in, in serving God. And submitting himself to the will of the Father, he also serves others. And that's true with us. As we serve others, we also serve God. As we meet the needs of others, as we care, as we lift up, as we encourage, as we invite, as we build up in the Lord, others, we're also serving and glorifying God, Jesus tells us this when he speaks about, you know, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was, I was lonely and you visited me. And the guys are like saying, when did we ever do this? What does he say? That's right. As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Here we're to have the mind of Christ. We see his humility displayed in his submission to the Father in his servant's heart, in his selflessness. 
But I want you to notice his exaltation. We'll look at this verses 9 through 11 briefly. We saw what Christ did in humbling himself willingly, obediently to the Father. The Bible says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Years ago, that's why I had John open up with Roman Revelation 1. Years ago, I was preparing a Christmas service sermon. And when you preach and have to prepare Christmas sermons, I mean, you, you, you comb over the gospel narratives and you're like, man, I don't want to say what I said last year or the year before that. But it just struck me that our fascination is around this baby in a manger. And I said, you know what we need? We need to see the magnitude of who he is. John, Revelation 1, he looks and beholds and sees the guy speaking to him, so overwhelmed at the vision of Christ that he falls down lifeless. Isn't that amazing? The glory of who he is and what he's come to do in his humility. And, and, and here Paul says it did not stop there at his death, but, but his exaltation is a reminder of the answer to his prayer. Father, restore the glory that I had before the world was. Exalted above all authorities, all kingdoms, all rulers, all spirits, all angels, all demons, all realms, past, present, and future. There's not NATO, there's not America or Russia or China or any of these other places that do not fall under, dramatically under, the power and the authority and the supremacy of Christ. He is chiefly sovereign. There is no equal. There is no no beside him seats as a UN council. That's what he's saying here. That what God has done is exalted him back to his rightful place of all glory and honor. and, and, And given him all authority. Given him all authority. Notice the text. He says God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Where's salvation found at? Name of Jesus, right? No other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. Everyone will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That is a cosmic, ultimate humiliation creation will acknowledge its creator romans 1 we've suppressed the knowledge of god we've we've elevated creation began worshiping the the creation rather than the creator we worship ourselves and and whatever else we can find to to worship whatever rock we can turn over to to uncover something that is fascinating but one day creation all of it will acknowledge its creator And none will be standing proud in its accomplishments on that day. The Bible says here is an ultimate humiliation as it acknowledges its creator that every tongue confess, every knee will what? Under submission to the ultimate sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? 
What a mystery. That we live in a world where Christianity is seen as evil and weak, despised. Early, early Rome, seen the same way. Seen as if it's kind of, I don't know if it's going to make it with the suffering going on and with the frailty of the world and the rage against it. And yet the Bible says in, in Psalms 2, right, that, that, that they laugh, let's, let's set ourselves against him. And then one day he will set his king on his holy hill. And he will have the nations as an inheritance. That's what you see here. Paul is pulling out of that idea of the ultimate kingship of the Son, the ultimate glory, the ultimate exaltation. There is no wiggle room. It's universal. It's ultimate display of the glory and majesty of the Son, the glory of the Father. And it doesn't matter what creed you profess. It doesn't matter what confession you lean to. It doesn't matter what cult or religion you're a part of. It doesn't matter what the world seeks to worship. And it doesn't matter if you're non-religious. And you just said, oh, forget the whole thing. Every knee will bow. From Adam to the last created human or last created being, every knee will bow before him. Everyone will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that an overwhelming thought? And yet the Bible tells us that we can humble ourselves now before him and confess him Lord now. The Bible says now he's found full of grace and mercy. You find him saying, come to me, for I am meek and lowly in heart to find rest for your soul. And you find over and over, come and drink freely, come and and be forgiven, come and humble yourself. Now, there is still a humility. There is still a bowing down. There's still an acknowledgement. But it's much, much different. It's much different. Is bowing before him and acknowledging who he is and receiving grace from him now so that you and I might stand in the day of judgment forgiven, clothed, sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the burdens it is is pastoring and preaching week after week and knowing you guys and seeing you guys on this side and is I kind of know where some of you are and I know where some of you are. I shouldn't say kind of. Passive, isn't it? Pastor Ed, correct me later. And some of you I don't. My desire, my burden, is that you would find the joy and the benefit and the peace in his lordship now before you acknowledge him and Lord when you're forced to on the day of judgment. Not in love and admiration, but in fear and dread. And you would be right to do so. You see, he has been highly exalted. You know, there's something there for us, I think, in this passage. Not that we are exalted like that. But the Bible says humility is the means and the way in which God will lift us up. We humble ourselves here and we leave our glory 
We leave our exaltation. We leave our namesake. We leave all the things which we tend to fight for in our own franticness to get what we think we deserve. We leave that in God's hands and he will take care of it. In fact, what we find is that he has promised us an inheritance in glory that is ours in Christ Jesus that is eternal. Not empty like the selfish ambition which the world seeks after and the conceit which is mentioned in verse number 3. But as we are humbled, as we humble ourselves before God and give ourselves in obedience to him and serving others, God will not only meet our needs but he will, he will reward us richly. So much so as at the exaltation of Christ in his kingdom, we too will be exalted. We too will bear a weight of glory. Isn't that amazing? You leave the glory to God. And he'll do it right. We strive and fight for it ourselves. And you know, we always get it wrong, right? A couple of us. I think it's true with all of us. That's what he's telling the church here. Have this mind. Think the way Christ thought. He was willing to submit himself to the Father. He was a servant. He was selfless. And he left the exaltation and the glory business to God who, without fail, does it right. Bow with me for a word of prayer. It is my earnest desire that each of you would be walking with Christ, that you would know the fullness of fellowship with him, that you would know and enjoy and find the comfort, safety, and the fact that Christ is Lord of your life, your Lord. And if you don't know him, if you're, outside of him, you've never put your faith and trust in him, if you're rebelling against him, can I say surrender? Put up the white flag. Come to him even now and, and confess and, and turn from your own stubbornness. Man, we are stubborn people. All of us. Humble yourself before him and he will lift you up. And each of us as church, I, I just encourage you, let us have the mind of Christ towards one another, a servant's heart, selflessness, and submission. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.